Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on August 11, 2020, covering significant changes in the Section 163J regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Julie Allen, PwC's National Tax Services Market Leader, Rebecca Lee, a principal in PwC's International Tax Services Practice, Craig Gerson, a partner in PwC's Mergers and Acquisitions Practice, Nita Asher, a principal in PwC's International Tax Services Practice, and Bob Ritter, a principal in PwC's Transfer Pricing Practice. This excerpt features a discussion of the 2020 proposed Section 163J regulations and key takeaways. Have a listen. Nita, I'd like to come over to you. Can you briefly describe the other recently issued guidance under Section 163J before we dive into these proposed regs? And can you also provide an example of an item that's still being considered and subject to future guidance? Sure, I'd be happy to, Julie. And I think you touched on some of the unanswered questions earlier um, in the discussion, but with respect to the related guidance issued under um, 163J, in addition to the final and proposed regulations, Treasury and the IRS also released Notice 2020-59, which provides a or proposes rather a revenue procedure applicable to companies engaged in certain electing real property trades or businesses and FAQs that provide a general overview of the aggregation rules under 448C2 that apply for purposes of the gross receipts test and that apply to determine whether a taxpayer is a small business that is exempt from the business interest expense deduction limitation. As far as an example of um, guidance that um, stakeholders are eagerly awaiting, um, the the final regulations reserve on the coordination of 163J and other taxable income-based provisions, including Section 250. Um, However, until guidance is issued, companies may use any reasonable approach for coordinating taxable income-based provisions. And um, this is not a a surprising development, um, given that the final regulations issued under 250, uh, gosh, perhaps now two months ago, also reserved on the application or coordination, rather, of the rules under um, Section 250 and 163J. So we do, um, you know, anticipate additional guidance in in addition to finalization of the proposed regulations under 163J. Thanks, Nita. That's very helpful. Um, Rebecca, let's go to you for some of the highlights of the proposed regulations, knowing that folks are still analyzing their strategy, and maybe we can highlight some important points to take into account in their analysis. And that makes a ton of sense to me. We haven't had that long to live with the proposed and uh, regulations yet. So in terms of the calculation of ATI, there is a rule. We've, we've spent a lot of time on the rules in the final regulations. In the proposed regulations, there's a rule proposed to allow taxpayers to reduce ATI by the lesser of gain from the sale of property or the greater of the allowed or allowable depreciation, amortization, and depletion deductions for the tax years beginning after 2017 
before 2022. Um, so this rule is proposed and it's intended to, um, to allow taxpayers the choice. It's not a required rule on the manner in which they're reducing ATI. And, and that's, again, pretty impactful, um, but to assess how much of an impact it has on you know, your particular business, you really have to go through the mechanics of the calculation to see how much it moves the needle. Um, Julie, I think uh, there's a number of other changes as well in the proposed regulations that are certainly top of mind. Absolutely, and so maybe we jump to Craig um, if you'll add some there that you're thinking of the proposed regulations, and then maybe Nita and Bob right behind Craig, if you'll add any insight that you have on the proposed regs. Yeah, so the in the partnership context, a lot of the headlines are in the proposed regs. Six big changes. Um, I'll talk for a minute on on two of the bigger ones, and then and then skip through the rest quickly. But first is a new exception for self-charge lending. If a partner lends to a partnership then that partner lender generally will get to offset any allocable uh, excess business interest expense from that loan with their own interest income as business interest income, even if debt expense would otherwise be limited at the partnership level. Um, sort of a mixed bag here for non-corporate partners. This may, may mean that much of the interest on the amount lent will be investment interest income, but uh, definitely going to be something that we focus a lot of attention on. Second big category, debt finance distributions. Uh, generally, partnership debt is characterized as investment or trade or business based on how the partnership uses the debt proceeds. However, it's hard to administer that principle if the partnership borrows and then distributes the proceeds of the borrowing out to the partners. So this common fact pattern can raise questions about whether the partnership can trace the use of debt proceeds up through tiers. And Given the entity treatment of partnerships generally, whether one partner's use of debt proceeds should impact the partnership's characterization of the interest expense in a way that affects all of the other partners. So the proposed regs try to address these two concerns by suggesting two governing principles. First, all cash is fungible. So if the partnership has cash expenditures for that year um, that were not debt financed, then we'll treat those as though they were debt financed. That helps limit the scope of the debt tracing problem that I described. Second, if there are insufficient partnership debt expenditures, uh, non-debt funded expenditures, then the effect of the proposed rules is basically to treat the recipient partner from the debt uh, distribution as borrowing their share of the excess amount directly. And then it's the partner's responsibility to characterize it depending on the partner's own usage of the proceeds. Um, I, I think, again, a lot will be uh, learned and written about these rules, but it, it generally a pretty elegant uh, solution in terms of the reporting considerations that it was otherwise raising. Third category, uh, comprehensive rules on tiered partnerships. These rules are extremely complicated. They don't lend themselves well to a 10 second summary, but generally they're gonna apply on a tier by tier entity level basis and are written in a way that is intended to avoid inside and outside basis disparities. Uh, and again, very complicated. Uh, fourth element, rules for trading partnerships. Uh, a lot of uncertainty here uh, about the interaction of sections 163D and 163J. And so the regs take this really interesting approach of um, requiring partnerships to bifurcate the 163J items attributable to the activity between materially participating partners and passive partners based on what the partners do with respect to the trade or business activity. Um, 
last two buckets, application of the CARES Act partnerships generally is just restate the statutory rules that were enacted in the CARES Act with respect to partnerships, but they do have some special rules about partnership interests that are disposed of in 2019 or 2020. So if you have a disposition in either of those years, um, give a look. And then last, publicly traded partnerships. Um, real quick, basically publicly traded partnerships can allocate excess items in a manner that retains fungibility for those interests, um, which is important for that industry. So with that, I will kick it over to Nita to talk about uh, uh, CFC rules. Thanks, Craig. And I'm going to run with your headlines description to emphasize the importance of the proposed regulations and how the detail with respect to how 163J applies to foreign corporations is set forth in the proposed regulations, whereas the final regulations uh, primarily retain the, the general rules set forth in the 2018 proposed regs. So starting with the application of uh, 163J to CFCs, in response to taxpayers' comments regarding administrative and operational restructuring concerns relating to the application of 163J to CFCs under the complicated excess taxable income or ETI tiering approach set forth in the 2018 proposed regulations, Treasury and the IRS reproposed substantially modified rules regarding the application of 163J at the CFC level and the impact on U.S. shareholders. The new proposed regulations change how 163J is computed for a CFC group, how a CFC group is defined, and how a U.S. shareholder may increase its ATI. The new proposed regulations also provide a somewhat helpful safe harbor election and a new anti-avoidance rule. So let's unpack these significant changes. With respect to how 163J is computed for a CFC group, under the revised approach, a single 163J limitation is computed for a CFC group. And to determine the CFC group section 163J limitation, each CFC group member section 163J items, which for example include current year business interest expense and business interest income, are first computed at the CFC group member level. The CFC group's single 163J limitation would then be computed based on the sum of all of these separately determined amounts. And note that the 2020 proposed regulations generally apply the U.S. Consolidated Return Group principles duly discussed earlier in the presentation to CFC groups subject to certain modifications. And this quasi-consolidated uh, approach taken by the 2020 proposed regulations was intended to simplify the application of Section 163J at the CFC level. However, consolidated return principles are quite complicated, so it's no surprise that Treasury is seeking comments from companies regarding uh, the new consolidated approach to CFC groups. Moving to the definition of specified and CFC groups, um, the proposed regulations provide a revised CFC group election that would broaden the potential applicability of the CFC group method. 
and more specifically, proposed regulation 163J-7 allows an election to be made to apply 163J on a group basis with respect to applicable CFCs that are specified group members of a specified group. And a specified group is defined using affiliated group standards under section 1504 with certain modifications. Um, for example, a specified group includes one or more chains of applicable CFCs with a specified group parent that meets the ownership requirements um, in section 1504 A-2 uh, cat B. However, the specified group rules only require that 80% of the total value rather than vote and value of an applicable CFC uh, be owned by the specified group parent or other applicable CFCs in the specified group. Further, the 2020 proposed regulations take into account both stock owned directly and indirectly under section 318 A2 cap A and cap B through a domestic or foreign partnership or a foreign estate or trust. There's also a new temporal rule that identifies when an applicable CFC may qualify as a specified group member and rules that apply to joining or departing members. Um, finally, in a helpful departure from the 2018 proposed regulations, the 2020 proposed regulations also provide that CFCs that have ECI may be members of a CFC group. However, only the items of income gain, expense, and loss not attributable to ECI may be taken into account by the CFC group. Um, and I guess I should also note, unlike the 2018 proposed regulations, the 2020 proposed regulations do not provide for CFC financial services subgroups. Instead, applicable CFCs engaged in financial services could be include, included in a CFC group under the 2020 proposed regulations. Um, the takeaway here, and I know it's quite a bit that we just covered, is that Treasury and the IRS responded to taxpayer comments criticizing the strict eligibility requirements of the CFC group method set forth in the 2018 proposed regulations, and the 2020 proposed regulations potentially broaden the applicability of the CFC group method. That being said, the CFC group rules remain complicated and are subject to further evolution and refinement prior to finalization. Now moving to how a US shareholder may increase its ATI. In response to comments from companies, Treasury provided a rule allowing a US shareholder to include in its ATI a portion of the ETI of standalone CFCs or a CFC group member. And that is consistent with the 2018 proposed regulations. The final and, uh, and 2020 proposed regulations provide that um, a US shareholder ATI generally excludes CFC income inclusion items, such as amounts included in the gross income of a US shareholder under section 78 or subpart F or guilty. If, however, a CFC group election is made, the US shareholder would be allowed to include in ATI certain amounts of CFC group ETI 
not to exceed the U.S. shareholder subpart F in guilty inclusions without regard to the Section 78 amount uh, with respect to the CFC group. Um, and a takeaway here is that for tax years in which the final regulations are effective, Section 163J is applicable at the CFC level, and the final regulations provide that uh, specified deemed inclusion, such as subpart F and guilty inclusions net for Section 250 deduction, are subtracted uh, when computing a U.S. shareholder's ATI and provide no mechanism for adding back such amounts. And so here's a case, as you know, Craig noted when we first uh, discussed applicability dates, is where perhaps companies should consider whether to early adopt the 2020 proposed regulations and make a CFC group election in order to include some or all of such amounts in, in ATI. Um, quickly moving to the safe harbor election, the 2020 proposed regulations provide a new safe harbor election pursuant to which a taxpayer um, or a stakeholder can elect to not apply Section 163J to a standalone CFC or a CFC group whose business interest expense otherwise would not have been limited under 163J, determined by applying certain tests set forth in the 2020 proposed regulations. And there's also, with all the good, a new anti-abuse rule that increases ATI of a CFC-specified group member that incurs business interest expense to another CFC-specified group member if the business interest expense is incurred with the principal purpose of reducing uh, the U.S. tax liability of a U.S. shareholder of a specified group member, and no CFC group election is in effect. Um, Treasury noted in the preamble its concern regarding companies affirmatively planning to limit business interest expense deductions as part of a tax planning transaction. And so that's the you know, genesis behind the, the new anti-abuse rules set forth in the proposed regulations. I think that insight was very helpful. So let's move on. Craig, I'm going to come over to you. You and me, Rebecca and Bob, have had a ton of insight throughout all of this. But one of the key themes we've been talking about are the key partnership developments in the 2020 proposed regs. So just going to ask you your brief thoughts on do we think that the government got these rules right? And if not, what are some of the key considerations going forward? Sure, Julian. I kind of like you to expect. I think the proposed regs are a mixed bag for companies. They contain some long-awaited clarification on important topics like tiered partnerships and debt finance distribution and some welcome relief in the form of uh, the self-charged interest rules and other exemptions. However, they also bring with them a crushing amount of complexity. There are a few rules that don't work well and produce some maybe adverse and unforeseen results. And there's a whole bunch of new areas of uncertainty. So the, I think the risk here is that there may be a tendency towards regulatory exhaustion. We've seen wave after wave of new rules, even just specifically in uh, 163J. And it's important that companies and advisors keep their energy up and continue to comment on the new proposed regs, given that these are rules that we're likely going to be with us for a long time to come. We've seen the power of and the government's receptivity toward targeted logical comments. We see this in the final 163J rules, where the government accepted our comments around the depreciation and amortization add back. And there are going to be similar opportunities in the new proposed regulations to find the right balance between complexity and fairness 
And it's important that we all keep up our end of that conversation. Thank you, very insightful, because I know there's a ton of stuff in that partnership area. Even with like the intercompany stuff I was weaving in, partnerships came right into those consolidated group roles. So thanks for that insight. I am gonna jump to the key takeaways I think this is an important part where the panelists, we've gone on, we've had this 90 minute um, review of all of this detail and thank you all for all of your insight on that. This is the important part where they get to give you the few takeaways that are really impactful. So I'm gonna ask everybody to go in just this order. We'll start with Rebecca, then Craig, then Nita, then Bob. And Bob, I'm gonna ask you if, with respect to the proposed regs, um, if you, We'll weave in a transfer pricing lens in any of those key takeaways. That would be great. So, Rebecca, on to you. I think the biggest takeaway from the entirety of the reg package are the presence of a variety of new anti abuse rules, both specific to the definition of interest, specific to the CFC area. And in a world where you're navigating not just uh, sort of rules that provide a high degree of clarity, but rules that have an anti avoidance bent. These are rules you need to have top of mind at the beginning of the discussion of any particular planning or any restructuring or any activity that you're going to undertake because sort of viewed with the benefit of hindsight, uh, those facts and circumstances that Bob mentioned are going to include all of the facts and circumstances through your assessment of various options as well as what you ultimately implement. So we all know we're, we're careful in terms of what we put in our emails and our tweets and thoughtful from the beginning of a transaction through its execution. Thanks. Craig, on to you. So I'm going to talk about the flashy topic of record keeping. So the regs provide a lot of helpful guidance on a lot of important questions, but it comes at a cost. The IRS is clearly embracing the world of big data, and that sort of continues a trend that arguably began with the regulations under Section 185, uh, excuse me, 385. Um, complying with the regulations will obligate companies to institute extensive new record-keeping procedures. And some of these record-keeping procedures aren't in place yet, but companies will need to start implementing these requirements um, now if they want to comply with some of the rules in the proposed regs when they're ultimately finalized. For example, partnerships may need to trace expenditures and the use of debt proceeds um, today if they want to use uh, the proposed regs after they're finalized. Um, they may need to adopt methods for tracking adjusted basis of assets, monitor participation of partners, record purposes of guaranteed payments, interest, and retain records of Section 163J excess item allocations. And that's just partnerships. Companies that consider and begin to implement those procedures today will be ahead of the game when it comes time to final to file final returns and as the additional rules are finalized. Awesome, Nita, I'll come to you. Great, and I'll just quickly um, note the importance of modeling, the flexibility in deciding uh, which set of rules to apply highlights the importance um, of modeling for companies. And it's not just the modeling, the provisions that forth in the different packages, but also how the 163J rules are interacting with other guidance uh, recently issued by Treasury and the IRS. Great, Bob, to you for key takeaways and transfer pricing, Lincoln. 
All right, thank you. Well, I'll end with the definition of interest, which is where we spent a bunch of time on. So I think key takeaways are, you know, we're definitely aware that the narrow definite interest uh, of is what we would assume for U.S. income tax purposes. But as we said, beware of the broad anti-avoidance rules uh, that could recharacterize the transactions. You know, I think main thing for folks is, is documentation. I know Rebecca mentioned this is, is thinking through, you know, planning and restructuring the documentation around it will be key you know, to, to basically making sure from the principal purpose and laying out the facts and circumstances you got that. And I think from a TP perspective, I'll just say, you know, I think things that, you know, as we deal with issues and things that come up, you know, what, how you word your contracts, you know, you, you know, it really can be key. I think we're really focused on economics and TP, but sometimes maybe the way that you write things up and stuff like that, make sure you reach out to all of these you know, colleagues that are on here as well as, uh, and folks to think through it. And then you know, also just recharacterization, you know, amongst audits, right? So you've got audits that happen and there's adjustments that you know, may happen. And so what, what is that? What does that characterize as an interest? Is it something that will come up to be an issue to consider? But I'll leave it at that because I know we're running out of time, Julie. Thank you. Thank you. That was excellent. Thank you all. Rebecca, Craig, Nita, Bob, thank you for this insight and the key takeaways on, you know, modeling, the partnership rules, anti-abuse, the definition of interest, that transfer pricing overlay, and the applicability. I will just add in from my side, a strong focus on the change in those surly rules and the treatment of intercompany, um, intercompany transactions are very important in this wave and also in the 163J regs. Thank you so much for your time today and we hope you all have a great day. Thank you for listening to this tax readiness podcast. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.